1: Walking the path with the Buddha. I'm glad you joined us for today's class because this is part two of our meditation, developing your practice discussion that we started on Sunday, which is in chapter 11. And as we taught on Sunday and as we discussed as a class, there were a lot of good questions that got asked and got answered during the class. And it actually slipped my mind that I actually had one more important slide with a lot of different bullet points that I was going to share as part of our class on Sunday, but I didn't get to it. So therefore, I let the students know on Sunday that I would be including that content in today's class. So if you've tuned in for a loving kindness meditation class, you're in the right place We are most likely going to be doing loving-kindness meditation, but it all depends on the content that we share in today's class because I am interested in honoring what I had set out to do on Sunday, which is share all the content from chapter 11 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. And if you've read any amount of this book, you probably realize that this is actually the longest chapter in the entire book is about meditation, and it's the longest one for a reason. I didn't compute it to be the longest one. It's just that there's so much to talk about related to meditation, and it's a primary aspect of our practice to train the mind to enlightenment, where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So therefore, it turned out to be the largest chapter in the book with the most things to talk about so it kind of makes sense that we were running out of time on sunday when we were setting out to discuss this entire chapter so thank you for being here just like on all of our other classes you're going to be able to ask questions as we go so if you're in facebook youtube or zoom you can put your questions into the comment section and our moderators manal and Bassam will see that and be able to get your question asked during the class and I'll be sure to answer it. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you have that way. And what I'd like to start out with is just kind of a brief, 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 high, high, high level overview of what we discussed on Sunday because there's some people who were in that class on Sunday who this will be a good kind of recap or reorientation of the mind. And then there's people who are also attending today's class that weren't in Sunday's class that will get some benefit here. So I would like to just kind of reorient you to what we talked about on Sunday, which is we first started out talking about meditation basics, about how meditation is a technique actively used to train the mind to eliminate or cultivate various qualities of mind during a dedicated, independent, purposeful training session and this is offered as a definition of what meditation is to make it very clear because sometimes in the world we think of meditation or some people talk about meditation as exercise or walking the dog or gardening or going for a drive and those things aren't meditation. So it was important in this chapter and in our talk on Sunday to be sure that we had a common definition of what is meditation. I talked about the benefits of a meditation teacher and why everyone who's really serious, dedicated, determined, and diligent on this path should have a teacher to learn not only meditation but all the teachings of the Buddha. A practitioner would not be able to attain enlightenment without a teacher there's only one type of individual that can do that, and that is a Buddha. That's one of the primary criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha, is that they can attain enlightenment on their own without the help or assistance of any other people. And the last known Buddha that existed in the world died over 2,500 years ago. So there hasn't been a Buddha since then that everyone is aware of, Therefore, you and everyone else who's really serious and dedicated on this path is going to need a meditation teacher. This is a big misunderstanding out in the world that people think that through YouTube or reading a few books or chatting in a few Facebook groups that somehow that's going to amount to detailed teaching and interaction with the teacher. Somebody who really understands the path intimately and can help guide you on this path. Without a teacher, somebody would be essentially walking down a dark path in the jungle without a light. A meditation teacher or a teacher who's sharing the teachings of the Buddha, they're holding the light and they're helping you to see the path. And then that helps you to become more and more enlightened. So now you can walk on this independent journey. The meditation teacher, the teacher who's sharing the Buddhist teachings with you, they're not holding your hand. They're not with you every single second, but they're somebody that you can go to and seek guidance. Well, this is an independent journey, you need that guidance and someone that you can reach out to to get support with books and videos and podcasts and online classes or in-person classes, personal interaction, and then you decide how much of that to seek. But without that, somebody would just be walking a dark path without a light. And then we talked about the four meditation positions, seated, lying, standing, and walking. And I walked through all the different scenarios of those of how I use these, but then I encouraged you to use these and figure out for yourself what works best in what situations. So we started out with that. Then we went into some of Gautama Buddha's words on meditation, just some very basic, simple words like a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. Well, the mind is the pot. Tipping over the pot is the discontentedness that the mind experiences, the mind being shaken up. And the stand is your meditation practice. So without a stand, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment once again because you need that meditation practice to be nice and stable in order to support you and train the mind through to enlightenment and then we talked about this other one as well and then we talked about four different types of training that the Buddha discusses in terms of training the mind and meditation and I mapped these in to the four different types of meditation that I teach and that are offered in chapter 11 showing you the breathing mindfulness meditation, exactly what you're eliminating and cultivating, loving kindness meditation, meditation to eliminate sexual cravings, and meditation to realize non-self. These four directly map into what the Buddha taught, and this is the reason why I teach them, because I know that these lead to enlightenment. Then we shared this, talking about eliminating sexual cravings and how to actually do that through looking at pictures while you're meditating, and or doing the 32-part body meditation. Then we talked about the meditation to realize non-self. And one of the things I would like to mention here that I didn't mention on Sunday is this meditation, not only is it a meditation that you're going to learn with a teacher, and a teacher is going to be giving you a whole lot of other things along with just this to realize non-self, but these are affirmations that you use just like loving kindness meditation where when we meditate and we say you know may i be peaceful may i be well may i be free of all discontentedness and we do that on the out breath these are affirmations that you also do on the out breath and you do them repeatedly one after another so this meditation would be i am not the body exhale and then inhale i am not the body And just repeat that over and over. Three, four, five, six, eight times. I am not the body. I am not the body. It's in the mind. It's an affirmation that you're doing in the mind. And then you move to the next one. I am not the mind. And you do that. Three, four, five, six, eight times. On the out breath. Just like we do with loving kindness meditation. And then there is no self. And then I do not exist. And then summing that up with, I am not the body, I am not the mind, there is no self, I do not exist. And you go through these over and over and over again, training the mind slowly to disassociate with this physical body or this mind as being a self. And there's other teachings as well that we share along with this. And you wouldn't be able to just do this right out of the box. You would need to have a well-established breathing mindfulness meditation practice, loving kindness meditation practice. You will have needed to put together all the core teachings of the Eightfold Path to include the three universal truths, the four noble truths, all the steps of the Eightfold Path, understanding the natural law of gamma, training the mind more and more to get into the jhanas, which are the preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the four stages of enlightenment. And then as you're in those jhanas, that's the time to be working with a teacher, which you will have already been doing before you got to the jhanas, but work closely with the teacher to understand this meditation, as well as the other practices that you do on a daily basis in order to disassociate with this physical body and this mind as being the self. Okay, so that's what we talked about. And I thought I was all done there, and we just had one more thing to share. But in reality, I had this slide with a whole lot of other things to share with you guys. So let me share this with you guys. So once you understand the basics of meditation, once you understand the four types of meditation and the four positions of meditation, now it's time to go in and start talking about, well, how do you start meditation? How do you conduct an actual meditation session? Well, there's some things that you need to understand in all of this training of the mind. There's this physical body and there's this mind, or we can say there's this form and there's this consciousness, right? In this consciousness or in this mind, there's decisions that are being made all the time. Each individual moment, we're making decisions. And some of those decisions that we're making are generating things like speech, or our bodily actions, or which job do we take, which livelihood do we have, right? Or if we apply right effort or not, or do we have awareness of mind, or do we have right concentration? The mind is the boss in this body or this form. It's the employee. It's just following along. There's muscles, there's tendons, there's joints, there's all these different things but the body by itself can't do anything that's why once a person reaches death the physical body just lays there because there's no consciousness that can control the body so the body is the employee while the mind is the boss so what we're doing in meditation is we're training the boss we need to train the boss this isn't always normal in most work environments But in this situation, we need to go through the body in order to get to the boss. And that's why we use the seated, lying, standing, and walking meditation positions in order to kind of appease the employee. We're kind of helping the employee to be somewhat content. So when we sit on the floor and we cross our legs and then we make the body nice and erect, we're kind of appeasing the employee so that we can get to the boss, so that we can get to the mind. Where we would like the body to be comfortable, but not luxurious. So if the body's kind of slouched and we're trying to meditate, the boss isn't paying attention because the employees are slacking off. The body's slacking off. It's complacent. So the boss is complacent. So we've got to go through this body in order to get to the boss we have to go through this employee to get to the boss so that's why we cross our legs that's why we make our body erect and we rest our hands and arms in our lap so that now with this upright position not too rigid and not too slouched the boss is attentive and alert and now we can actively train it so this is what it means in the book and in all the other teachings that i share when i say the mind is the boss, and the body is the employee. And we've got to ensure that we're going through the employee, making the employee comfortable, but not luxurious. Because if the employees are luxurious, they're going to slack off. Therefore, we're not going to be able to get to the boss. The employee's not going to want to take us to go see the boss if the employees are slacking off. And likewise, if the body is experiencing pain, it's not going to want to take us to go see the boss. So if the employees are experiencing pain, it's not going to want to take us to go see the boss because all the employees going to be telling the boss is pain, 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 pain. So anytime you're meditating, whether it's seated, lying, standing, walking, whatever it is, if you feel pain in the body, there is no award or reward that is given For someone who sits through the pain, the pain is the body's way of telling the mind something's wrong. So if you notice that a hip is sore or a a knee or an ankle is feeling pain, change the position. Whether you maintain your seated position and just shift your legs around or whether you switch to lying or standing, the body is not going to be willing to take us to see the boss the mind, if it's experiencing pain. This employee, the body, if it's experiencing pain, it's not going to be interested to take us to go see the mind, the boss. So we need to kind of appease this body. We need to appease this employee. But at the same time, we don't want it to be so luxurious. So we need to maintain that erectness in the spine in order to keep the boss attentive and alert and then we can actively train the mind through our meditation session. The Buddha also talked about setting up mindfulness in front of you as you prepare for meditation. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. In order to prepare for meditation and get the most benefit out of your meditation, you're going to need to cultivate awareness of mind. You can't just walk in off the street plop down on the floor and meditate. I mean, you certainly can try, but you're not typically going to experience the best results that way. And likewise, if you kind of rush to get home and hurried up and got home and ran into the house and ran to wherever it is that you meditate and plop down to meditate there, that's not the best way to enter into your meditation session either. You need to set up mindfulness in front of you. And in order to be able to accomplish mindfulness, which is awareness of mind, the mind has to be calm. If the mind is not calm, then all mindfulness is going to be lost. This is the reason why we practice equanimity or calmness of mind or evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations. Because if the mind is shaken up and uncalm, you're going to lose your mindfulness awareness of mind and if you lose your awareness of mind you're going to lose your concentration your singleness of mind and if you lose that then you're going to lose your wisdom you're not going to be able to access the wisdom in the mind because the mind is all shaken up this is a series of steps the buddha lays this out in so many words and you can see the truth for yourself that when the mind is uncalm the mind's going to be shaken up so you're going to lose awareness of mind which means you're gonna lose your concentration, which means you're not gonna be able to access the wisdom and make wise decisions. This is why when you're in a difficult situation, if the mind's shaken up and everything's scattered, it's hard for you to make a wise decision, and you might actually produce a decision that makes the situation worse than if you would've just trained the mind to be calm. So it's the same thing in daily life, as it is in meditation. So because of this sequence of events that we need to maintain our calmness in order to practice mindfulness, in order to practice right concentration, in order to access our wisdom, we also should do that leading into meditation. You shouldn't just rush to go into meditation and you shouldn't just walk in the door and plop down and try to meditate. Instead, you should set up mindfulness in front of you. This may include things like going to the bathroom, just something simple. Empty out the organs. Make sure that there's no urine or stool or feces in the body that would disturb your meditation. If you're in meditation and those things happen, okay, get up and go to the bathroom. Don't hold on to the urine and the feces. Go to the bathroom, even if you need to disrupt your meditation. But if you go to empty the organs before meditation, then you're going to get a longer run of time where the body won't need to go to the bathroom. So this is part of appeasing that employee, appeasing the body. So something simple is going to the bathroom. Other things people might do is some people choose to do a little bit of stretching. Even if it's two minutes or five minutes or ten minutes, do a little bit of yoga, a little bit of stretching. These aren't things that you have to do. These are just things that I'm suggesting to you that you might wanna consider. And you may not do them for every single meditation session, but they're just things that you should do in order to prepare this body, to appease this body, to appease the employee so that we can get to the boss. So going to the bathroom, doing a little bit of stretching. Maybe some people like to do prayer and you can look in chapter 18 and see how I discuss in there about how you may need to adjust your prayers based on liberation of the mind and eliminating any craving or unknowing of true reality and how we actually use prayer. But if you like to pray and it's something that you have developed and something that you feel that is beneficial for you, then you can pray before meditation or after meditation or both if you like. Some people might choose to chant and that's something that I teach in this program is how to develop a chanting practice so that it can help ease the mind into meditation because in chanting you're becoming aware of the breath, you're becoming aware of the mind, and it's helping to ease you into meditation and do what Gautama Buddha said which is set up mindfulness in front of you where you have awareness of mind already starting to be cultivated before you ever even get into your meditation session. And this is why some people have asked me in the past, not in this program but in other venues that, you know, what should they do when they're really really enraged and angry? Should they sit down and meditate? I say, well, you can try if you like to, but typically at that point it's very difficult to meditate because you've lost your calmness of mind. You've lost any kind of mindfulness. You've lost your concentration. And maybe you've even lost your wisdom where you don't even think about meditating. I mean, you can certainly try, but you'll probably find that it's very, very difficult to meditate when the mind's angry. So that's what the Buddha's talking about here is setting up mindfulness in front of you is all about bringing awareness of the mind so that you're not just plopping down in meditation, but you're actually kind of building up to it so that you can kind of get the most benefit and reap the most rewards out of your actual meditation session because you've kind of built up to it. You haven't run into the house and run to go meditate. You haven't just plopped down and just given it no thought. You've actually kind of kept the mind calm. You've kind of built up maybe emptying out the organs, maybe doing a little stretching, a little bit of prayer, maybe a little bit of chanting, maybe all of those things. It's totally up to you how you would like to set up mindfulness in front of you. The Buddha, from all the things that I've seen, doesn't tell you exactly how to do this. He gives you this guidance and saying this is going to essentially benefit you in your meditation practice and then it's up to you to find out and figure out how to do that. And a teacher like me, I'm just giving you some suggestions of things you can consider. But each person's practice is going to be unique to them. And that's one of the beauties that I think is outstanding about the Buddhist teachings is he never says, you know, do this and do that. And there's not this rigid rules to follow. There's this guidance. And then there's this free will, this latitude of you making free will decisions to accomplish the goals that you are setting out to accomplish. And that's one of the reasons why a teacher is so important is that you can ask your teacher, you know, what do you do to set up mindfulness in front of you? What are the things that you do? And in this chapter, I listed step by step, what do I do in order to set up mindfulness in front of me? And I preface that with, you know, this is just an example and you should take the initiative to figure out what it means to set up mindfulness for you. And not that you have to repeat and do exactly what I do, but instead learn and figure out what makes your mind become the most attentive, the most aware, and figure out what those things are. And they might change as you progress in your practice. So set up mindfulness in front of you before you actually meditate. In terms of The time, frequency, or schedule of meditation, this is going to be different for every time you meditate, every day you meditate, and every practitioner is going to be a little bit different. There's no set time or frequency or schedule that you should feel obligated to fulfill. I will give you some suggestions here, but there's free will choice to exercise here. In terms of timing your meditations, I don't suggest that you time your meditations. Typically, if somebody sets an alarm in meditation, their mind is going to sit there and think, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? And that's the mind craving. That's craving, desire, attachment. The whole thing that we're trying to eliminate in our meditation of breathing mindfulness meditation. So setting alarm is actually going to detract from your meditation, because the mind's going to be sitting there sometimes obsessing. Is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it a time yet? The other thing that can happen is you may not be craving to know what time it is, but you've set the alarm and you've gotten deep and deep and deep in meditation and you're not even thinking about the alarm and you're getting all kinds of benefits from your meditation. And then beep, 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 the alarm goes off where it disturbs the meditation, where you could have actually gotten a whole lot more benefit had you not set the alarm. So setting the alarm is either going to cause the mind to crave and figure out what time it is, or it's going to potentially injure meditation session prematurely when you could have actually gotten more benefit and more results out of your meditation had you not set the time. And the reason why is because of gamma. Now let me relate this to gamma for you. The training that the Buddha taught is to bring the mind into the present moment. And we always make decisions in the present moment. We're not trying to long for the past and hold on to the past. We're also not longing and trying to figure out the future. We're just trying to make decisions in the present moment. Well, if you sit down and you say, I'm going to meditate for 30 minutes and you set an alarm, you're trying to decide what you're going to do 30 minutes from now and that's not possible. We can't know what we're gonna do 30 minutes from now. Because of impermanence, everything can change. So rather than sit down and try to figure out what you're gonna be doing 30 minutes from now and to set an alarm for that, just set the alarm to the side. Now, I say that, but at the same time, what I do share is that I suggest you build up your meditation practice to as close to 30 minutes and beyond per session as possible well if you're not timing your meditations how are you going to know that your meditation is 30 minutes or more the way that you know is that occasionally maybe once a week or once every two weeks before you start your meditation you look at the time oh it's 9 p.m. let me meditate and you meditate and then when you're done you look oh it's 9 45 p.m. I meditated for 45 minutes okay, I'm kind of in that sweet spot of about 30 minutes to an hour of meditation, which is what I'm sharing with you will produce the best results, is that 30 minutes to an hour. But only do this about once or twice a week. And then once you realize that you're hitting that sweet spot consistently, there's no need to actually look at the time anymore. Because it doesn't matter truly what amount of time that you're practicing. If you're practicing 35 minutes or you're practicing 45 minutes, what are you going to do with that information? Are we going to brag with our friends? Are we going to share this at a dinner party? Are we going to tell our family at the holidays how long we've been meditating and we've upped our meditation by 10 minutes? This sounds like arrogance and pride, right? So we're not going to go around and puff out our chest and be boastful about the length of time that we're actually meditating. The length of time we're meditating is only for you to make sure you're hitting that sweet spot. And for me, when I work with students one-on-one on a personal guidance, I will typically check in on this and I'll ask them, how long are you meditating each session? Especially when I first start working with a student at the beginning. And typically they're meditating five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, or something like this. And I'm going to encourage them to expand that to 30 minutes or beyond. And then I'm gonna keep checking in with that student as they schedule personal guidance sessions with me to be sure they get to that point. And then once I hear consistently that they're in that 30 minutes to an hour time frame, I'll probably stop asking the question because there's no need to ask it anymore after that. But that's important that you get to that sweet spot because if you only meditated five minutes every session, you're not going to get to enlightenment. But if you start out there and that's where you're starting, that's fine. You start out there and then you gradually expand that more and more and more until you get to that sweet spot of 30 minutes to an hour. In terms of frequency, it's important that you build up to two to three meditation sessions a day. Gautama Buddha meditated three times a day, and that was morning, midday, and evening there is no requirement to meditate at an exactly a certain time, like 6 a.m., 12 noon, and 6 p.m. or something like this. Or some people tell me they've been taught to meditate at exactly 3.30 a.m. and somehow there's some special thing that's going to happen at 3.30 a.m. and that's what they've been doing. Well, your body and the mind doesn't know that it's 3.30 a.m., It just knows that it's awake and the body's functioning. So there's no specific time or rigid schedule that you have to come up with in terms of meditating at exactly the same time every day. That's not possible. Or even meditating at exactly the same frequency every day. There's some days where I've meditated four, five, six times a day. There's other times where I meditate two or three times a day. There's even the occasional once a day, depending on what's going on, but I'm always building up the practice for longer amounts of time and trying to get to that point where it's two to three times a day consistently. And that's what you should do too, because the Buddha discovered these teachings. He knew what was best. He was able to build up his practice to three times a day. And if you've ever tried that you'll see the truth for yourself that the mind will make a lot more progress that way. But out of the gate, you're not going to probably be able to do three times a day. You might only be able to do once a day for five minutes, and that's all you can do to get started. And that's fine because that's where you're starting. But then as you go, build that up where you get two times a day for five minutes. And then when you're doing that for a while, build that up to 10 minutes twice a day and then 15 minutes twice a day, and 30 minutes twice a day, and 40 minutes twice a day. And then maybe by that point, you're seeing a lot of benefit, and you've created more space in your life. And now maybe you get that third session in there somewhere. But there are occasionally some people who have the time, maybe retired people, or people who don't have to be at a certain office or a certain place at a certain time, that they can get to three meditation sessions right out of the gate. And that's something that they can accomplish. And if you can do that, excellent. Because the way meditation works is it's like scooping water. And the more scoops that you can take, the more water you're going to get in the bucket. The mind is thirsty. It needs this water. The mind needs this meditation. And if three times a day, you can scoop for 30 minutes, so an hour and a half a day, and that's what you can do, you're gonna fill up that bucket, and you're gonna make some really good progress. But if you can only do once a day for five minutes, your mind's thirsty. Go ahead and scoop water for once a day for five minutes, and that's going to be beneficial for the mind. And as you do that, and the mind gets more and more used to that, and you start seeing the benefits, you'll gradually be interested to expand your schedule more and more because you'll see the benefits for yourself so don't try to have a fixed rigid schedule but you may choose to have anchor points and for me i know that when i wake up in the morning that's my time to meditate and prior to going to sleep at night that's my time to meditate now there's occasionally times where i wake up in the morning and i can't meditate because i have a certain thing on my schedule that i need to attend to right away. And then after I get that taken care of, I will typically end up in a meditation session shortly thereafter. And then in the evening times, what you need to be aware of is sometimes what we do is we lay around, we lay around, we do our nighttime activity, the mind starts feeling sleepy and we can feel sleep coming on and we say, oh, I need to meditate. Let me meditate before going to bed. And now someone might try to meditate. Don't do this. This actually is going to cause challenges for you because the mind's not going to be attentive and alert in order for you to get the most benefit out of your meditation. Now, if that's what you're doing now, it's okay. And I'm sure you've been seeing a certain level of benefits. But what you would like to do is about 30, 45 minutes before you know the mind's going to end up becoming tired that's when you initiate your meditation session. Because that's when your mind's most active and attentive and alert that you can actually now actively, purposefully train this mind in this purposeful meditation session. Whereas if you wait until sleep is starting to come on, now the employee is starting to become lackadaisical. It's starting to become a bit lazy and you're not going to be able to get to the boss as well. So If you're now meditating at a time where the mind's starting to become sleepy just make a mental note to initiate your meditation prior to that a good 30 minutes or 45 minutes prior and if your meditation is lasting an hour then maybe an hour before that right and what you'll end up doing is you'll be waking up to meditation and you'll be going to sleep to meditation and you'll notice that the consistency of this of scooping water at these two times is going to fill up this bucket more and more and more and more, and you're gonna be getting more and more benefits out of your meditation. So let me pause here that we've gone through these three bullet points, and see what questions you guys might have on anything we've been discussing so far. Now remember, you can put your comments into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and our moderators will see that and ask your question during the class. In Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask questions during the class. So I'll turn this over to you guys, Basum and Manal, and see what questions, if any, that we might have.
2: Yes, uh, there are no questions on Zoom at the moment. However, I wanted to ask, would the me- um, chanting before we sit for meditation, which we do in our live classes, would that also be something that we can practice not to do on our personal meditation sits in order to not form any craving or attachment?
1: Yes. So I suggest that once you get kind of a four, six, eight week meditation practice really well established, where you're having the initiative to start meditating, you meditate, your meditation becomes longer and longer and longer. Maybe you've brought in chanting and you kind of get into a certain flow and you've kind of got your way of meditating, you've got a certain cushion you've got a certain lighting that you like, you do it in a certain room, you may even have the chance that you're doing regularly. And this is kind of your way to meditate. Well, once you are seeing benefits there and you're getting some really good benefits, and you're six, eight weeks, maybe even longer into this, and you're noticing some real good benefits, I suggest you start tweaking the variables a bit in order to ensure that the mind doesn't get attached to any one given thing and maybe something that you should kind of test the mind on by introducing some impermanence is just change the room. If you're used to meditating in the same exact room all the time, switch to a different room in your house or switch to meditating outside in your yard if you have a yard or or go to a park or something like this. Change the venue, okay? Then, but you still have your kind of home base, right? Like for me, I do the vast majority of my meditation in the room, in the bedroom where I sleep. And that's my home base. That's my primary place. But then I kind of go out and do meditation in other places to kind of test the mind and be sure it's not attached to the room and make sure it's not attached to the pillows that I put under my rear. And then just like you're saying, Manal, is mix up the chanting is sometimes chant, sometimes don't, or sometimes chant before your meditation and sometimes don't chant afterwards or sometimes just go into meditation without chanting and maybe chant afterwards or sometimes just don't chant at all. But you introducing this impermanence into your meditation practice will train the mind to not be fixed and holding on to any one given thing. But I suggest you only change one variable at a time because early in your practice, your mind's going to be highly defiled. It's going to have a lot of craving, desire, attachment. And if you change too many variables too quick, you may not get any kind of benefit or result from the actual meditation session. It might just kind of shake up the mind too much. So I suggest early on that you just change kind of one variable at a time. So if you're used to meditating in your room, like me in the bedroom, and then you decide to start meditating at a park, Keep doing that two, three, four, five, six, eight times until you get to a point where your meditation in the park is just as beneficial as it is when you're in your bedroom. And then when you've got that, now change to another location, maybe to a friend's house or your parent's house or another room in your house or something like that. And now you've got three, four, five different locations that you have been able to train the mind to be just as peaceful, calm, and content with joy and make just as much benefit in all these different venues, now you know that the mind is not attached to the venue where you're meditating. And then if you end up meditating in one primary location most of the time, then you can do that still. And then after that, change the next variables, right? Change something else. And slowly, gradually, each one of these variables in your meditation Kind of play with them, so to speak, and see that your mind is not attached to any one particular thing.
2: Okay, thank you. And also, you mentioned the usage of an alarm clock during meditation. Um, my question is if I don't have a strong enough volition to or practice to sit to meditate during the day, but I set that an alarm to remind myself, you know, every um, twice a day or three times a day or once a day, um, just, just to mentally go into the, the mind frame of sitting to meditate, being reminded to go ahead and sit. Is that, a, is that an okay tool at this point? Or sure. should, I, should I develop my own volition on my own enough that I don't, I don't really need to do that alarm?
1: ultimately you would like to get to the point where you have your own volition or your own choices your own decision and you just know to do it every day that's ultimately what you would like to get to that your mind just wouldn't leave the house without brushing your teeth and you wouldn't start your day or you wouldn't end your day without doing some meditation but in the meantime if you need a tool like an alarm clock to remind you there's no harm in that whatsoever and likewise when i say don't use an alarm clock That's like the general guidance, but there's some people who are meditating in the morning and they've got to be at work at a certain time. And if they didn't set an alarm clock, they might end up creating some unwholesome results for themselves, some unwholesome karma that they would show up to work late and maybe lose their job. So even though I say like the best case is to not use an alarm clock. There's going to be people in the world that do need to set an alarm clock for their meditation. So maybe in the morning, Monday through Friday, if that's when you're working, you set an alarm clock while you're meditating because you know you only have 30 minutes and that's what you've got. And you're going to do that and set an alarm clock. But then in the middle of the day or maybe in the evening or on the weekends, you don't have those same time constraints. Those are the times you should work to get away from the alarm clock. But if you need an alarm clock because you're going to work in the morning, then go ahead and use it. So what I'm sharing with you in terms of timing or setting up your meditation with a clock, this is guidance and this is what works best. But remember, there's no permanence here. So there's going to be people in situations where they're going to need an alarm clock. And that's something that they might need to actually employ. So feel free that you can do those kind of things as you need to.
3: Thank you, Doctor we'll Bassam. Thanks, Manal. Uh, teacher, I have a question about the second point, which is uh, mindfulness. Uh, in such cases, when one starts meditation and after maybe two, three, five minutes, uh, one uh, observes that the mind is wandering between topics. So, would it be better to stop meditation at this point and start after some time, or try to continue and be content
1: with what it is? just continue and be content with what it is because in that moment where your mind became aware that it wasn't on the breath at that moment you were practicing mindfulness at that moment and that's what you're working towards is you're working to eliminate craving desire attachment in breathing mindfulness meditation and you're looking to cultivate right mindfulness or awareness of mind and also cultivate this concentration or singleness of mind so the unenlightened mind is going to wander. It's going to go to the past. It's going to go to the future. It's going to have thoughts and ideas and perceptions. These things are going to happen all the way up and you know, through to the point where you get to enlightenment. So if you stopped every time the mind was off the breath, then you would be stopping your meditation all the time. When you notice that the mind is off the breath, you're practicing right mindfulness at that point. And that's part of what you're cultivating in the meditation, is to be aware. Oh, yeah, the mind's not on the breath. Bring it back. And now you're on the breath. So don't stop. Just be content and just know that, okay, the mind wasn't on the breath. It was wandering there. Bring it back. Cut off those thoughts. Let them go. Bring it back. Yeah, okay,
3: thanks. Uh, since that uh, that's
1: all for now. Okay. So let's go to sleepiness during meditation. This is a common one that we see, especially when you're first starting out with meditation. Oftentimes the mind is, when we first start, is very heavy with defilement. And when I say heavy with defilement, what I mean is that pollution or those taints in the mind, the craving, anger, ignorance, or those 10 fetters. And because of that, as the mind is being trained, oftentimes it becomes very sleepy. You might go through a period of three, six months or so that every time you meditate, it becomes very sleepy. And this is an indication that you potentially aren't getting enough rest and you're not sleeping enough. So you need to be sure that you factor that in and perhaps improve your sleep so that you get some better quality sleep and for longer duration. So that's the first thing. To pay attention to if you're noticing sleepiness during meditation. The next thing is that if you become sleepy during meditation and the mind starts to become unattentive, you can choose to go to sleep. And you might just decide, okay, I need some rest. I need to sleep and I'm going to go to sleep. And that might be what you decide. The other option might be that you know that you've gotten a decent amount of sleep. It's just that the mind's becoming sleepy and you would like to extend your meditation session despite the sleepiness in the mind, in that situation, I suggest that you change positions. So if you are in the seated position and the mind becomes sleepy, I suggest that you stand, for example. Or if you're in the lying position and the mind becomes sleepy, maybe you would like to switch to standing or walking, right? And vice versa, you know, if you're in seated, you could also switch to walking. So you can use the standing and walking positions to kind of fend off sleepiness. And then after you do those for a while, if you would like to move back to seated or lying, you can. So don't just give up because the mind is sleepy. You can actually look for ways to extend your meditation session, especially if you know you're already getting enough sleep. So three things to consider there is one, be sure you're getting enough sleep. Two, if the mind is becoming sleepy during meditation, you might just need to go to sleep and that's what you need to do. Or third, you might need to just change the position in order to extend your meditation session. Next one is physical sensations during meditation. This is where when you meditate, if the body has like an itch or some people experience the feeling of their head expanding during meditation, or other bodily sensations that can happen during meditation. If you're starting to become aware of these during meditation, that's good. That's actually good that you're aware of these bodily sensations. Every single last one of them is impermanent. So if you can, don't feel like you need to itch right away. Try to resist that urge to itch right away. Because what you can do during your meditation is when the itch arises or when there's something on your skin, maybe like a piece of dust lands on the face or the nose, you can actually use this as an aid during your meditation to train the mind to be focused on the breath and just stay utterly focused on the breath, recognizing the impermanence of the itch, that it has arisen, it's going to exist, and then it's going to cease to exist. And going through that 10 seconds or 30 seconds before it actually ceases to exist is really beneficial for the mind. Because the way that the unenlightened mind works is when something disagreeable happens, it wants to push it away right away. This is aversion, where the mind wants to push away painful feelings. Things that are disagreeable, things that the mind doesn't like, it wants to push it away. So you're trying to kind of reprogram the mind so that it doesn't do this anymore. So that in daily life, when something disagreeable happens, that the mind would prefer that doesn't happen, that you don't have a tendency to push it away. And one of the ways that you can train the mind to eliminate aversion is that when you're in meditation and there's that itch that comes to the surface, is you can just keep focused on the breath. Don't push it away by scratching it. Or if a fly comes around and starts bothering the mind or the way that this is really happening is the mind is bothered by the fly, right? The fly isn't truly bothering the mind. The mind is bothered by the fly. And what the mind might have a tendency to do in the unenlighted state is push away that fly because that's the aversion where it wants to get rid of any disagreeable things. Well, instead of doing that, which is what the mind's going to naturally want to do as part of this unenlightened state, you're trying to train the mind to get to this enlightened state where it doesn't push away disagreeable things, where it doesn't push away painful feelings, that it recognizes that it can have discipline and control in all situations. So even when there's that dust on the nose, or even when that fly comes around and goes in the ear or whatever, maintain the focus on the breath and notice that more and more you can train the mind longer and longer periods of time to not itch or not to swat the fly. And initially, after five seconds, you might need to scratch, right? And you might decide to do that. But the next time that happens, try to extend it longer and longer and longer where you can go the whole life cycle of the scratch or the itch and you don't actually have to itch it. And this is where the mind becomes very stable like a post or like a pillar and it doesn't shake with just a little itch or a fly going around or if your children or your dog comes in and scratches at the door or scratches you or licks you or something like that if the light goes on or you hear a big thing of thunder or somebody outside honks their horn or you hear a kid laughing or playing or screaming outside while you're meditating. All of this stuff is just temporary impermanent sounds or some sensation in the physical body. And you can actually use this for your benefit to train the mind to recognize the impermanence of it and to not be affected by that impermanence and to not have aversion when this disagreeable thing happens. So train the mind to reside peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy, no matter what, even when there's physical sensations that are arising or some kind of external thing like thunder or kids playing at a playground or horns honking or something like this. Don't get the mind worked into a situation where you think everything needs to be perfectly quiet in order to meditate. Because in reality, those stimulus are actually really beneficial for the mind. When kids are playing at the playground and you're trying to meditate, if that bothers the mind, that's a perfect place for you to meditate. Or if light bothers you when you are meditating, that's a perfect place for you to meditate. Or any other sounds, right? If there's anything that's bothering the mind during meditation, you've gotta get to the point where you train the mind To be peaceful calm serene and content with joy in that situation whether it's a fly whether it's a scratch whether it's some noise or some visual thing like a light or something like that and if you ever experience the head expanding or contracting during meditation this is a common thing that will sometimes occur during meditation it's temporary it only happens for a period of time and then you won't experience it anymore Some people say it feels like an elephant's head. Well, one of the things that's happening while you're meditating and you're training the mind is there's physical changes that are happening to the brain. This is now being proven through things like CAT scans and MRIs. The brain is not the mind, and the mind is not the brain, but there is a connection between these two things. Just like the hand is not the brain, and the brain is not the hand, but there's a connection between the brain and the hand. right? So the mind and the brain have some type of connection. And when you're meditating, and also when you're practicing these teachings, when you're practicing things like generosity and loving kindness, and you're practicing equanimity, and you're practicing all these other teachings, all the precepts and everything that you're practicing, the Eightfold Path and everything, this is all making physical changes to the brain And you might feel that during meditation or after meditation. You might actually feel certain things in the brain shifting and changing. And you can have these sensations where the head feels like it's the size of an elephant and it's expanding and contracting. This is completely normal. You haven't done anything wrong whatsoever. You shouldn't crave for this to happen. But if it does happen, just remain unaffected by it. Keep focusing on the breath there's going to be changes to the brain, and what the scientists are seeing is they're proving what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught that once the mind attains enlightenment, it's permanent. It never goes back to being unenlightened again, and we explain that through the teachings in terms of wisdom and the reason why the enlightened mental state is permanent. Well, these changes that happen to the physical brain, scientists are observing that as they are happening and when they happen— They never revert back to the way that the brain was previously. So these changes that are going to be gradually happening as you meditate and as you learn and practice these teachings, it's going to be changing the condition of the mind, but it's also going to be changing the physical structures of the brain. And when this happens, don't be alarmed by it. In fact, there was times when I was meditating that I actually heard things moving in the brain. It was like... You know things like that. And don't be alarmed by it. Just be unaffected by it and just know that that's actually a really good sign. And this is just part of the mind and the brain doing what it does as it moves closer and closer to enlightenment. So these physical sensations are going to occur in the body and use it as part of your training. Because of these changes that I'm talking about in the brain, You also may experience visual stimulation during meditation. This is something new that I've added to the new book because it's a question that comes up a lot of times, that while you're meditating, you might see white lights or blue lights or red lights. You might see flashing lights. You might see different visualizations and different images in the mind while you're meditating. All this stuff is completely normal This is the mind kind of emptying out and kind of unraveling, getting to a better and better place. And it's just completely normal. It happens. There's nothing to be alarmed about. You don't have to send an email or a message to your teacher and be worried that you saw flashing red lights in your meditation or think that there's something special because you experienced these flashing red lights. And now somehow that has some important significance for you. This is just normal, it's just common, it's regular. The brain and the eyes are involved in a lot of processing, and as the mind is improving the condition of the mind through this training, as the brain is changing, you're going to potentially experience different visual stimulation during meditation. Completely normal, you're not special because it happened, and there's nothing special that you have to do because it's happening. It's just completely normal. And then in terms of external stimulation during meditation, these are things like music or mala beads or candles or special lighting or special incense or scents. None of this stuff is going to lead to enlightenment. In fact, All of these things can very easily become attachments. So if I get fixed where I can only meditate with certain music, or I can only meditate where there's a a gong or my favorite candle's burning, and it creates a certain glow in the room and a certain smell in the room, and my mind really clues into meditation when that occurs, well, those things are all impermanent. And that means if your mind and your meditation practice gets fixed, this special candle or this special music or something else at some point you're not going to have those things and your meditation practice is going to fall apart likewise one of the primary benefits and what you're working to do during breathing mindfulness meditation is to eliminate craving desire attachment where the mind is holding on or it's longing for something well if your mind is longing for a candle or your mind is holding on to music, or your mind is holding on to someone guiding you during meditation and talking the entire time that you're meditating, then your mind isn't able to let go of all of these external stimulus and focus instead on the breath so that you can eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and build awareness of mind. Because if the mind is fixated on the music, or the meditation app is guiding you all the way through meditation, then you haven't gone internal and looked at the mind and observed it, that it's off the breath and to cut off the thoughts and bring it back to the breath. Instead, you've replaced all this other stimulus with music or with a guided app or guided meditation or beads or candles or something like this. You're just introducing things into your meditation practice that you're going to have to get rid of in order for you to attain enlightenment. So you really would like to strip your meditation practice down to only three things. There's only three things that your meditation practice should need. The body, the mind, and the breath. And if you're not there yet, it's okay. But if you're just starting out a meditation practice, use the body the mind, and the breath. Don't introduce all these other things for your mind to get fixated on and hold on to. Because the body, the mind, and the breath, you're going to have those with you all the time for this entire life. For the rest of this life, you're going to have the body, the mind, and the breath. Everything else is impermanent in this life. But in this life, you will have the body, the mind, and the breath with you for this entire life. So build up your meditation practice to the point where you're only meditating with the body, the mind, and the breath. So if you're using guided apps now, or you're using music, or you're using mala beads, or candles, or things like this, what I suggest you to do is gradually move the mind away from those things. Because the mind doesn't like impermanence. The unrelated mind doesn't like change. It doesn't like shifting things around. And the best way to get the mind comfortable with letting something go is to do it gradually. The mind prefers gradual training. So if you're meditating two times a day or three times a day and you're meditating with music all the time, then what I suggest you do is do one session with the music, one session without, one session with it, one session without one session with it, one session without. Then do two sessions without it and one session with it, two sessions without it, and then one session with it. And do that for a few weeks. And then build up more and more and more where you're not meditating with the music at all, where you're not meditating with the guided app at all or guided meditation at all or you're not with the mala beads or the candles or whatever it is that you've got in your practice, you've got to strip it all out and strip it all down to bare bones where it's body, mind, and breath. And this will serve you really, really well because if you're traveling in the mountains of Thailand, or if you're sitting on a 24-hour airplane flight, or if you're laying in a hospital bed somewhere, you can always meditate because you've got the body the mind, and the breath. You don't need anything else. And this way, you can build up a consistent meditation practice where you're meditating consistently two or three times a day. But if your mind is attached to a special cushion or a special lighting or a special candle or a special scent or a special music, that means you're only going to be able to meditate when those conditions exist. So, I suggest that you don't introduce those things into your meditation practice if you're not currently using them. And if you are currently using them, gradually move your mind away from them. Now, with that said, that should be 80 or 90% of your meditation practice, the body, the mind, and the breath. 80 to 90% of your practice. If 10 or 20% of your practice is going out to a gong meditation with a group And that's creating community and bringing you together with other people who are on the path and kind of invigorating the mind with a different type of meditation that's going to kind of ignite your meditation practice that you're doing 80 or 90% of the time on your own with just body, mind, and breath, then go do it. Or if every once in a while you would like to light a candle while you're meditating, go for it. It's not that you can't do these things that I'm sharing. It's that you would like to first strip your meditation practice down to bare bones where it's just body, mind, and breath. Do that for an extended period of time. Get lots and lots of benefit out of it. Develop that practice and really stabilize it. And once you do, then if every once in a while, 10, 20% of the time, you introduce something like a gong meditation with a group or going out somewhere and meditating with a group somewhere, then go ahead and do that because that can actually invigorate your meditation practice. But your primary practice should be two to three times a day for 30 to 60 minutes per session. And you should be doing this two to three times a day with just body, mind, and breath. Just you alone. And moving that around in different venues so you're changing up the variables of sound and lighting and other things like this. And as you do this, the condition of the mind is going to gradually improve because it's starting to be trained to accept and deal with impermanence. And it's being trained that it's not always going to be sitting on the fluffy pillows at home, that it's sometimes going to be on a wooden bench in the park. And in that park, there are seagulls or there's geese or there's ducks or there's people walking by and talking or there's exercise going on or there's something like this, or there's the wind that's blowing. So the mind's going to start slowly getting used to these other variables. And this is actually very healthy to train the mind to introduce these different variables to kind of test and challenge the mind. But you only are interested in doing that after you've got a really well-established practice together, and you've got a primary location where you've really got a well-established practice. And then once you do, and you're noticing that, then it can actually be very invigorating and beneficial to your practice to kind of move it around, move the mind around in different environments and test it and give it a chance to become acclimated to different variables. Because discontentedness is gonna come through the eyes, the ears, the nose, tongue, the bodily contact, or the mind, These six doorways. And by you moving the mind around, in different locations, then that's going to create different stimulus and different variables, different impermanence that the mind has to experience. And then it has to gain its contentedness with those new variables. So this is what I would suggest for you in terms of starting your meditation practice, building it up and starting to conduct normal, regular meditation sessions on an ongoing basis. So that's everything that I was gonna share today that I was planning to share on Sunday. Let me see if you guys have any questions on this before we move on to something new.
2: Yes, Miranda has a question. She asks, I've only attempted walking meditation a couple of times. Could you please give some guidance on how to do this properly?
1: Yeah, I really need to get a video together for walking meditation. I'm seeing more and more people that are needing this guidance. and. Out of all the videos that I've created, I just haven't created one about that yet. And then when COVID came and it became a little bit more challenging. So I need to get out and create a video for you guys to benefit from how I teach walking meditation. I teach it in person because there's kind of a preliminary activity that I do before I teach walking meditation. And that preliminary activity really helps you to do walking meditation. But let me try here. I've never tried to teach it online like this. So let me try. I've done it in private Zoom sessions before. So anybody who maybe this doesn't quite work, we can ask questions. We can have discussion today. But if it doesn't quite work for you and you need some more guidance, schedule a personal guidance session with me. I'll take the laptop downstairs in our living room or outside and I'll walk and show you guys how to do it. But let me try to do it with my fingers and see if that might help. So, what you'd like to do is you'd like to get to the point where you're just standing and you're gripping your wrist with the other hand, just lightly clasping in front of you or behind you, or your arms and hands are just by your side. So, there's three options there. Just make your hands and arms just comfortable either by your side or clasp in the front or the back of you. Then, with standing, just take your foot. And only about maybe a foot or two, not a big step, just about a foot or two in front of you, just kind of place your foot flat on the floor and then transfer your weight. Place your foot flat on the floor and then transfer your weight. Place your foot flat on the floor and then transfer your weight. And what you're doing with your eyes is you're staring about one meter in front of you about three feet in front of you, you're just staring at the floor. You're not looking to the sides. You're not looking to the future. You're not looking to the past. You're just staring at the floor, just one meter in front of you. That's the present moment. And what you're doing is you're slowing down your walk where you're just placing the foot, literally just naturally placing it on the floor and then you're transferring your weight. Place it and then transfer your weight place it and then transfer your weight. It's very intentional walking, okay? Let me actually see if I can, just so you guys can see the movement of how slow it is. You won't be able to see my feet here, but the way this works is I'm just looking down at the ground, I'm just gonna put my foot right out in front of me with a flat foot, and then I'm gonna transfer the weight. Transfer 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 just really really slow like that and what you would normally do if you're in kind of a smaller space is you walk in a circle counterclockwise you walk in a circle and if you're outside like at a park or something like that you can walk on a trail or you can you know walk on a blacktop pavement and just slowly 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 walk you're not trying to get anywhere destination-wise. You're not actually trying to get somewhere. You're actually just trying to slow the mind down because where walking meditation comes in is when the mind's overactive and it doesn't want to sit or it doesn't want to lay or it doesn't want to stand, or you're just trying to get some movement going in the body because there's some pain or maybe there's some sleepiness. You're just using the meditation to slow the mind down so you're not actually trying to get somewhere, so you're not trying to walk fast. You're also not walking heel to toe like you might normally walk. You might normally walk heel to toe. But in walking meditation, you're just gonna put your foot flat on the floor and then you're gonna transfer. Flat on the floor and then transfer. Just really intentional walking to slow the mind Down. So, I'm going to work on getting a video together that can help explain this, and you guys can see my feet and I can do this other activity ahead of time. But hopefully, this was at least helpful. I don't know, how was it, Miranda? Did did that help you at all? I, I see you nodding your head. That's good enough. So, okay. So, it looks like it was somewhat helpful, but I'll definitely look at getting a video together. I'll see if my wife or my son can help me with videoing. That's one of the other reasons why I wasn't able to do a video because the person needs to be able to move with me. All the other videos that I've done, it's all been a still camera on a tripod. So I really need to get this video together because walking meditation is very important for your practice and it can really help an overactive mind to slow down. It can really help to get the energy out and kind of stabilize the mind it can really help during sleepiness if there's sleepiness or if there's any pain in the body and the mind is experiencing pain or you might introduce it as impermanence if you're meditating right now 100 percent of the time in seated position then you're going to need to change your position in order to kind of introduce some impermanence into your meditation practice and get it comfortable So walking meditation or lying or standing might be a little bit of impermanence that you need to introduce. So never allow the mind to get fixated or latched on or holding on to anything whatsoever, even in your meditation practice. Introduce different variables to let the mind see that I'm never gonna let you ever get latched on to anything at all, because when you get latched on, that's when the painful feelings are going to come when you get latched onto your children or your husband or your wife or your partner or your car or your job or your favorite clothes or your favorite food as soon as the mind latches on and holds on you're setting yourself up for failure there's going to be painful feelings at some point you might get pleasant feelings and that's why you want to latch on but because of those pleasant feelings at some point there's going to be painful feelings so don't even allow the mind to get latched on to anything in meditation. No music, no candles, no gongs, no mala beads, no particular position or particular location. And once you train the mind and you strip it down to the body, the mind, and the breath, then like I mentioned, if you would like to introduce these things every once in a while, it's okay because you've already trained the mind. To let go of those things and you know that it's not attached to them but you won't know that until you strip your practice down to the bare bones
2: miranda comments okay i understand thank you sir my body mind tends to be like a little ball of energy and sitting for meditation can be difficult i understand your exp- explanation thank you for the guidance
1: yeah this is a perfect one for you miranda my mind was like that too at one point it was just overactive certain times and just the last thing I that was on my mind was sitting somewhere to do meditation. It was like it was almost like something was boiling inside of me. I just had to go, 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 go. And getting out there and walking and slowing down and walking slow. It slowed it down. I mean, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes of that just walking and slow. It can also help with fear, too. I did a lot of the walking meditation that I did here in Chiang Mai in Thailand. And the streets here are very narrow and there's motorbikes whizzing up and down these streets. And at that time there was lots of tourists. And I would go out at nighttime on Friday, Saturday night, and I would look down at the ground and people would be bumping into me and there'd be a motorbike whizzing by and You'd hear people chatting and tourists talking and things like this. Or I'd walk by a bar and there'd be like a a smell of smoke or loud music would come out or people were laughing or whatever. All of these things were like introducing impermanence into the mind. And I was able to get rid of any fear because I was just focused looking down at the street. I also got that whiff of smoke or I got that smell of alcohol or that coffee shop, you know, smell the coffee that maybe the mine in the past would have had a tendency to have craving for coffee. There was even times where I was walking and it had rained about an hour or so before, and I walked under an overhang and it was just dripping off of the overhang and a drip hit me right smack in the middle of the head. And just staying fixated on the ground and not even be affected by that drop on the head it helps you to see how well trained your mind is that it didn't bother you. The music didn't bother you. The motorbikes whizzing by didn't bother you. The tourists bumping into you or you know, laughing or joking or talking or whatever didn't bother you. And this is how you get your mind to the point where just nothing bothers you. It's completely stable. So not only is it going to help with your overactive mind, but as the mind slows down and becomes more and more stable, you can move it into various environments where you can introduce different stimulus that's going to help you to maintain your focus on the ground and on the breath and not the sounds or the wind or the motorbikes running by or other things like this and that's where you get really really stable and go inward really deeply.
2: Ali has a question in standing meditation do you close your eyes?
1: Yes I would typically close eyes because, remember, you're dealing with the six doorways of discontentedness here. And it's the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. And those are the doorways. And during meditation, the more doorways you can shut down, the more contentedness you're going to be able to bring to the mind. So whether you're seated, lying, or standing, you can keep your eyes closed. Unless you're doing walking meditation or unless you're doing that meditation where you're looking at the corpse that I I showed you guys for eliminating sexual cravings, you can keep your eyes open there. Now, if you'd like to try to meditate with your eyes open at other times, you certainly can. There's no harm in doing that, but the more you close down the doorways and you get used to protecting those doorways, the more internal you can go into the mind. And gain more benefit because when you're meditating this is why you shouldn't meditate when your mind's sleepy and you're getting ready to go to sleep but instead meditate before the mind gets sleepy is when you're meditating you're working this is like real active meditation you're working you're going inward you're applying effort you're actively training the mind in purposeful meditation sessions so if you can close the eyes and shut down that doorway then you can go internal and do all that work to be aware of the mind. When it's off the breath, cut it off and let it go and bring it back. And just do that. Awareness of mind, cut it off, let it go and bring it back. Bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. So do all that internal work. You'll probably find with the eyes closed that you'll be able to do that work much more proficiently
2: has a question is your mind supposed to be free of thoughts when practicing walking meditation
1: your mind during meditation will never be free of thoughts entirely you can't eliminate thoughts at all because it's just not possible the mind is conscious as long as there's a consciousness there's going to be thoughts you can still the thoughts you can quiet the thoughts but you'll never actually eliminate or completely eradicate thoughts entirely so that's why when the buddha says cut off the thoughts what he's actually saying is let go of the thoughts so during walking meditation there will be thoughts and your mind might want to look out of your peripheral vision to something that's going on over here and that's the mind wandering and just like you cut that off and bring it back to the breath and seated breathing mindfulness meditation and walking meditation, when the mind starts veering off to the side like that and you start looking out at your peripheral vision, you've got to cut that off and bring it back to focusing just one meter in front of you. And this is one of the reasons why I prefer to teach walking meditation in person, because after I get the students walking for a bit, I start introducing some impermanence into the training so that they then have to contend with that and train the mind with that so you're never going to completely be free of thoughts in the mind you'll be able to quiet them and still them but you're always going to have thoughts you're not actually eliminating thoughts in meditation you're bringing the mind's awareness to singleness of mind or concentration If somebody ever says that they're eliminating thoughts during meditation and that they have indeed eliminated thoughts during meditation, just ask them, how did you know that you eliminated thoughts during your meditation? Because they would have had to have a thought to know that they eliminated their thoughts, right? And that's a thought. So you actually can't eliminate thoughts. It's not possible, but you can still them and you can quiet them. So work on that, stilling the thoughts, quieting the thoughts, getting to that peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy, where the mind's focused on the breath and the thoughts are stilled. And in walking meditation, by looking at the ground, that's your fixation point. And you can still pay attention to the breath during walking meditation as well. See, there's a lot of moving parts in walking meditation. This is why I prefer to teach it in person But I'm going to try to get a video together that kind of incorporates the walking meditation when I can.
2: Nick has a question. Teacher David, why must it be counterclockwise circles? Why would the direction matter and why would the path shape matter?
1: You can do whatever you like. What I do is I walk in a counterclockwise circle. The reason why is because the Dhamma wheel that a Buddha spins upon their awakening moves in a counterclockwise direction. So to remind me of the Dhamma wheel spinning in a counterclockwise position, I always walk in a counterclockwise direction in a circle. What I see some people doing is I see them walk 5 or 10 meters in a straight line, and then they'll turn, and then they'll turn, and then they'll walk that 5 or 10 meters, then they'll turn then they'll turn, and then they'll walk again. I've done this before, and I don't prefer that. I think that the stopping and the turning is counterproductive because what I noticed during walking meditation is by walking in a continuous circle, it's almost like pouring your thoughts out. It's like emptying the mind out. It's like pouring that bucket of water out. And by walking in a circle, it helps to empty the mind and i don't prefer to walk back and forth back and forth back and forth i haven't found any benefit in that whatsoever but i found significant benefit in walking counterclockwise in a circle and when i was doing it in the city it was like a two to four block radius that i was walking in this circle when i do it in our village it's about a 600 meter circle when i do it in my house it's about a 10 or 15 meter circle inside my house. Or when I do it at the temple, you know, it's a 20 or 30 minute circle, but I'm always doing it in a circle counterclockwise. And that's what I found to work best. Now you can try different ways, do what I share, but also do it other ways too, and see what works best for you, because you've got to see the truth. This is the truth that I know that works for me, but you shouldn't believe me, like I've shared in other classes is do counterclockwise in a circle, do that for a week or two or three and see what benefits you get from that. And then if you wanna switch it up after that, then do walking back and forth, five or 10 meters, You know, down, turn, turn, walk, turn, turn, walk, do that for two, three, four weeks and see what kind of benefits you get from that. And I suspect that you're gonna see what I'm sharing is gonna be the most beneficial, but who knows? It might be different for you in your mind. So you've got to see the truth that works best for you.
2: Any right, He comments, okay, my complex is one-fourth mile in a rectangle. I can do counterclockwise around it. Thank you, Venerable Sir.
1: Yeah, try it and see how that works. And then just so you know the truth is after you get established with that, try it some other ways too and see how that works for you. And then you'll know the truth for yourself that you're not just following me and you're not just believing me but you see the truth for yourself and that way uh, you'll know and it'll be more ingrained in the mind and you'll be able to tell people just like i i have like where i said you know i've tried it this way and it doesn't work for me (laughs) and i've even done it in a classroom where there's like a, a bunch of students lined up in a line and we'll all walk like 10 meters or 20 meters forward And then we'll all turn and we'll all walk back. That doesn't work for me either. It's the walking in a circle and just the continuous circle, circle, circle is what word.
2: Holly also asked, do you think walking a labyrinth is as effective as just walking the circle?
1: What's a labyrinth? I don't know what that is.
2: A labyrinth is a a, a built-in meditation path it's made for walking meditation but it's built so that you walk you enter and then you follow the path and it kind of weaves in and out in different there are lots of different shapes and you end up in the center and then you come out in the you repeat it backwards to come back to the exit and it's it's made for walking meditations they have them everywhere so I just wondered if you thought that would be as effective you can still do the same process of looking down and walking slowly you're just kind of following a path that's already put out for you
1: Yeah you can try it I've never seen one of those. what I see here in Thailand is they will have a straight path which is about five or ten meters long and it's almost like um, it's almost like a, like a military lined up on a line or, or like maybe like a horseshoe uh, court. Right? Where there's like, oh, like something like that. Yeah, I've never seen one of those. You could try it. You could try it, Holly, and see what you get. Test it out. You know, get established with what I'm sharing with you and see whether that works for you. And then from there, if you would like to dabble and kind of mix it up and try some impermanence, introducing some impermanence, try some different things and see what is working for you. Or if what I'm sharing with you isn't working, connect back with me and say, David, you know, I've tried what you shared walking in a circle counterclockwise. This isn't working for me. I would like to get some clarification to see if I'm doing it You know, based on what you shared. Make sure you get that down first and that you really clearly understand that. And then once you do and you're seeing benefits with it, then introduce some other things. Uh, But here in Thailand, what they do is they have these little tracks that are like five or 10 meters long. And they just walk back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But there's other places that do walk in circles the way that I'm describing. I've just found that the circle just works wonderful. It feels literally like I'm pouring the thoughts out. Even though you're not getting to empty th- mine, you can't completely empty the mind in terms of no thoughts. But it feels like all those busy thoughts that I used to have... It felt like when I was doing walking in a counterclockwise circle, it just felt like those were just being poured out one by one by one by one as I was walking in a circle counterclockwise.
2: There are no more questions on Zoom.
1: Okay. How about you, Bassem? Do you have any questions on Facebook or YouTube?
3: Actually, no more questions on Facebook or YouTube for
1: now. Okay. You had a question that you were going to ask before class. Uh, Looking at the time, we probably aren't going to have time for meditation today. Why don't you go ahead and ask any questions that you guys have about any part of the path? Not necessarily meditation, but just anything at all. And I think uh, Basam had a question about karma, if I remember correctly.
3: Yeah. Uh, actually, my question was about uh, what I can understand as for now about karma, that it's a cause and result. So when there, was, when there is a need for a Buddha, a Buddha appears. So uh, from 2,000 years ago, there was no need for a Buddha. That's why there was no Buddha from uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, What I know that Jesus Christ could attain uh, the second stage of enlightenment, mostly on his own. Uh, I don't think that the the teachings of Gautama Buddha reached the Middle East where uh, Jesus Christ lived. So what would be the case if Jesus Christ could attain enlightenment on his own at that part of time? There was no need for a muda.
1: Right. So Jesus Christ, in my view, attained the second stage of enlightenment. He didn't attain enlightenment. He was only at the second stage. And the reason why I say that is because a person at the second stage of enlightenment would have eliminated the first three fetters, which is personal existence, view, a wrong grasp of behavior and observances, and doubt about the teachings. But they would have only thinned central desire and ill will. They would still have a bit of hatred, anger. And we know stories from Jesus Christ that he went into the temples, he tossed over the tax collector's tables, he showed anger at different times during his life. So we know he still had a bit of anger, right? And we also know that he said, I will come again. I will be reborn, is what he said. An enlightened being isn't going to be reborn. And an enlightened being isn't going to have anger, isn't going to toss over tables of vendors at a temple, right? So that's why I say that Jesus Christ looked to me, based on what I know about what I just shared and some other things that I know that I'm not sharing, that Jesus Christ attained the second stage of enlightenment during that lifetime. He wasn't a Buddha. He wasn't a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. That's why he got murdered during his lifetime. That's why his teachings aren't as clear as a Buddha. A Buddha's teachings are going to be very clear, very concise, very direct, and are going to lead exactly to the destination that they teach, which is enlightenment. What Jesus Christ was teaching was what he referred to as the Holy Spirit as the ultimate goal of the teachings, which if you look at the Holy Spirit and you look at enlightenment, they're very similar in terms of what the end result is. But the path and how it's described is a little bit different in terms of Jesus putting God as a more central focus and Buddha not and kind of saying, hey, as a practitioner, you can accomplish this on your own. Jesus' objective was to convince people that there's only one God. That was his objective, that he essentially set out, and he accomplished that. Because prior to his life, and during Gautama Buddha's lifetime, there were multiple gods being worshipped. And when Jesus came along and started performing all these miracles to convince people who he was, and then said, hey, there's only one God. He pretty much convinced the vast majority of the world that there's only one God, if you have any understanding of God at all. There are some people in the world that either don't believe in God at all or that still believe in multiple gods. But in terms of before Jesus's life and after his life, there is an enormous number of people that believe that there's only one God comparison to prior to his life. So he accomplished his goal which was to convince people that there was only one God, you know, convincing the vast majority of the people. But Jesus wasn't an actual Buddha. During the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, we know that he was a Buddha because he met all three primary criteria of what a Buddha is, and he met all the other criteria as well. But the three primary criteria are that he attained enlightenment on his own, full enlightenment, Right? Jesus didn't attain full enlightenment. He, in my view, was only at the second stage. Gautama Buddha attained full enlightenment on his own. So that's the first criteria of what makes a Buddha a Buddha. The second one is, is their independently discovered teachings that they discovered on their own. They share those their entire lifetime, helping countless people to attain enlightenment during their lifetime. The Buddha accomplished that. Gautama Buddha helped countless people during his lifetime to attain enlightenment. And then the third criteria is that they leave their teachings in such a condition that upon their death, countless more people can attain enlightenment after their death. And Gautama Buddha did that because here we are 2,500 years later, and there are people that are still attaining enlightenment based in his teachings. When he lived, the teachings came into the world and they shined very brightly because when a Buddha exists, Their wisdom is deep and profound. They help countless people to attain enlightenment during their lifetime. And the teachings are really bright in the world. Now, they didn't spread throughout the world during Gautama Buddha's lifetime. But in that region of the world that he was in, the teachings were very vibrant and very strong. And it's reported that for the next 500 years after his death, there was lots and lots and lots of people getting enlightened even after his death for 500 years. And from there, the teachings gradually declined more and more and more because of impermanence. From that bright period of over 2,500 years ago until today, the teachings have slowly declined. And the Buddha gave exact reasons why that was going to happen. He talks in his teachings, in the books that I'm publishing, he talks about what was going to lead to the decline of his teachings and he also talks about the things that are going to keep his teachings strong and vibrant in the world. Well, now over 2,500 years later, we're at a low point in humanity. We're at a low point in these teachings where the vast majority of the world is highly, highly discontent and yes, we need a Buddha and the Buddha described that there was going to be a new Buddha that was going to come into existence 2,500 years after his death. And that's the time that we're living in right now. And the goal of any new Buddha would be first to attain enlightenment on their own, because they need to attain enlightenment on their own to deeply and profoundly understand the teachings without the influence of any other teachers. And that's why a Buddha's wisdom is so deep and profound, because they did it themselves. For example, if they try certain things for walking meditation and it works, then they know that's the truth and they use it. If it's not the truth, then they kick it out and they don't use it. So a Buddha is going to independently do this on their own. A student is going to perhaps hold on to a teacher's teachings, whether it's working or not, and they're not going to be able to see the truth. But a Buddha is not going to do that. A Buddha is going to independently attain enlightenment on their own and kicking out and letting go of anything that doesn't serve them in their goal and in their objective to attain enlightenment. Anything that doesn't serve them benefit in attaining enlightenment, they let it go. And that's what's going to lead to their enlightenment. So by the time they've attained enlightenment, the only thing that resides in the mind is this deep, profound wisdom of exactly, exactly, exactly what leads to enlightenment not influenced by anyone else. So any new Buddha would need to first attain enlightenment. Then they would need to share their teachings that they discovered on their own independent practice with countless people during their lifetime and guide those people to enlightenment during their lifetime. And they would need to leave their teachings in such a condition that they would be able to be used beyond their death in order to allow more and more people to attain enlightenment after their death. So that's what any new Buddha is going to be focused on, is restoring the teachings of the Buddha into the world in such a way that they are spread throughout the entire world and all of humanity can attain enlightenment. This is what Jesus Christ talked about as heaven on earth. This is what the Buddha talked about with Maitreya Buddha, that Maitreya Buddha is going to bring his teachings into the world and clarify his teachings in such a way that all beings in the world are going to be able to learn and practice his teachings and be able to attain enlightenment over the course of many years and many generations that essentially the entire world will be able to attain enlightenment. Some people refer to this person as the world teacher or the world's teacher that this is an individual that's gonna be able to do this. And we're at a point in time right now where that's completely possible to occur. During the lifetime of the Buddha, that wasn't possible because we didn't have a common language across all of humanity. We also didn't have ease of travel to travel. So we didn't have a common language to share these teachings and we didn't have ease of travel to make sure we spread the teachings throughout the world. But today, in today's times, we have a common language that interlinks all of the world, which is English. It's the international language. It's going to remain the international language. It's going to become more and more of a primary language that's spoken all throughout the world. So anybody who's going to be a Buddha today is going to need to speak in English and teach in English so that the entire world can understand what they discovered in their own self-journey to enlightenment. Then Not only do we have the language that's capable, but we have the ability to send information throughout the world, and it doesn't even need to be on an airplane or a boat or a mule or a camel. It can be spread throughout the internet. So these are things that the Buddha couldn't necessarily foresee the internet, so to speak. He couldn't necessarily foresee the English language, but he knew that it was his goal to share these teachings into the world in such a way that they would remain vibrant for a period of time. And then they were gonna decline. And then it's up to Maitreya Buddha to bring those teachings back into the world in such a way that they could be spread throughout the entire world and they would be shared worldwide for all beings to attain enlightenment. And this is where the world can become more and more of a peaceful place. And this is where the world can live in peace and harmony with each other as more and more people in the world decide to get on this path to enlightenment and actually attain enlightenment. I don't know how many enlightened beings we have in the world right now, but let's just say we have a hundred, okay, which is minuscule. But let's just say we have a hundred, okay? But now let's say we go from a hundred enlightened beings, and all those enlightened beings are probably trying to help others attain enlightenment. Now, let's say we go to 100,000 enlightened beings in the world. It's only a matter of time before we get to a million. And once we have a million, it's only a matter of time before we get to 10 million and 100 million. right? And you can see the math here. That any kind of teachings that are coming into the world today that are producing enlightened beings on massive quantities, if we can get to a point where we have... Five hundred, a thousand, or three thousand enlightened beings in the world—that's going to just snowball. Because once people learn the truth, that truth isn't going to disappear again ever. Because the teachings will be captured in the English language, they will be shared widely, they will be shared in books and audio and video and things like this, and there'll be people who care to make sure that those teachings continue in the world because we know what happens when they don't continue in the world. The world goes like this. So any Buddha that comes into the world today is gonna to bring the teachings back into the world and help them shine in the world in such a way that everybody and anybody can learn them, practice them, and attain enlightenment, bringing the world to world peace. And this would be a world teacher who's capable of doing that. And this is the time frame that the Buddha said that that would happen.
3: Yeah, very clear.
1: Thanks, teacher. You're welcome. Other questions?
3: Mm, no more questions on Facebook
2: or YouTube or maybe Zoom. There yeah, are none no, on no, no.
1: Zoom. Okay. So, thank you guys for sticking around for today's class. Thank you for understanding that I couldn't teach everything on Sunday that I needed to teach in order to share meditation with you guys. Now I realize from this class that it's going to take two classes probably to teach this, where in the past I was able to teach it all in one class period. Now you guys are getting further along on this path. I'm noticing in my personal discussions and the type of post you guys are making and the type of questions that you guys are having in classes. And as you guys are scheduling personal discussions, I'm noticing the type of questions you guys are asking our community is becoming more and more enlightened every day, right? And I don't say that pridefully. I don't say that arrogantly. I can just tell that all of you, through your dedication, through your determination, through your diligence, you are all progressing. Now, you might not be progressing as fast as the mind wants, right? Because that's how the mind functions. The mind wants what it wants. So get rid of Where you hoped you would be, or where you crave to be, or where you want to be, I can observe that this community is progressing, and that's outstanding. The more that you guys are all learning and practicing, the more you're investigating, you're meditating, you're being dedicated, diligent, and determined to learn these teachings, life is only going to get better and better for you because you're eradicating that ignorance. You're gaining wisdom. That unknowing of true reality is being dissolved more and more and more, and this is why you're noticing that the mind's becoming more peaceful and calm in certain situations where things might have taken you a week or two to get over in the past. You can get over it in a couple of hours or a couple of days, or certain incidences of, that produced anger or rage in the past now aren't producing that. Maybe you're just a little irritated or a little annoyed right? This is because the mind's becoming more enlightened. You're gaining more wisdom. You're training the mind more and more, and it's improving the condition of the mind. So the more that we create more enlightened beings within this community, then we'll see this spreading of the teachings because it won't just be David that's sharing the teachings anymore, but you guys will be able to help each other more and more and more as we progress on this path. So in order to bring these teachings and have them shine in the world, and have countless people walking around that are enlightened beings, each one of us individually needs to stay dedicated and never give up on our practice. We need to stay dedicated and diligent to our own practice. So all of us are often interested in helping the world and improving the condition of the world and doing something to benefit the world. Well, one of the things that you might come to realize is the very best thing that you can actually do to benefit the world is to attain enlightenment your own growth on this path your own progress on this path is going to benefit this world because you're producing less and less harm in the world which means there's less harm for others to deal with and the more wisdom that you cultivate the more you're going to be able to share that with other people someday. And maybe not necessarily in a formal teaching role the way that I'm doing, but if you become enlightened and you're living with other people, a husband, a wife, kids, children, parents, just neighbors, maybe you're even single and you just have friends, your enlightenment, your wisdom that you have about enlightenment will slowly ooze out of you, more and more to the people around you, the light that you carry is going to shine the way for other people. So the very best thing that we could ever do for this world is to actually focus on our own mind and improve our own practice because we eliminate the harm that we're causing in the world and we are then able to help other beings on this path who choose to be taught. You can't drag anybody kicking and screaming to enlightenment. It doesn't work that way. They have to choose. But the more calm and the more peaceful, the more content, the more serene that your mind is, the more joyful that your mind is, people are gonna notice that and start asking you questions. And when they do, with your wisdom and your humbleness, you're gonna be able to politely, kindly, friendly, and respectfully share with them what led to the peacefulness that you're experiencing, to the calmness, to the serenity, to the contentedness and the joy. Because an enlightened being may or may not ever take up a formal teaching role, but even if they don't take up a formal teaching role, they will still understand the teachings deeply that they would be able to assist others who might ask questions. So you'll be able to help your partner You'll be able to help your children. You'll be able to help your parents and your neighbors and other people who are close around you as they choose and as they're interested to learn. So by focusing on your own enlightenment, it's the absolute best thing you could ever do for yourself, those close to you, and all of humanity. So the more that you do that, the better. So thank you all for your dedication to learning reflecting and practicing these teachings because the more that we all do this individually as a group we're laying the foundation for these teachings to come into the world in such a vibrant way that more and more people can attain enlightenment and we'll see the world gradually become a more and more and more peaceful place so thank you for your dedication thank you for your determination and thank you for your diligence I'll see you in class either on Sunday or next Wednesday. Sunday, we're going to be teaching chapter 12, which is craving is the problem. What is the solution? This is in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, the newest book. So that's a new chapter. It's been reordered, and we're going to be covering chapter 12. And then on Wednesday next week, we're going to definitely do breathing mindfulness meditation. We'll do a session of that because that syncs up with part of the solution for craving. So until next time, have a lovely rest of your day. Remember to treat everyone polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. And as long as you're doing that, you'll be producing lots of wholesome kama and wholesome results. We'll see you next time. Sawadee